Otherwise, on SAFM. It is Otherwise, and we are Talking Women, and I'm Nancy Richardson. It's nice to have you with us. Well, whilst we are scouring the media for women-focused news, as we do each and every weekday, as you know, I'm going to talk first to a woman who's deep in the media herself. She's our WhatsApp mole for today. She's in the Free State. She's a journalist, firstly with Report for 14 years, and she's now with The New Age. And don't forget, if you'd like to be an otherwise mole and tell us what's happening in your area, in your town or village or city or whatever it may be, um, tell us what's happening in terms of women, we'd be really pleased to hear. You can uh, send us an email at otherwise at safm.co.za Otherwise, you can pick up the phone. We're at 021-430-8172 or 75. 430-8172 or 75. But first, let's talk to our Free State Mole. She's Marina Fanfake. I hope you don't feel insulted, Marina, us calling you a mole. We mean it in the nicest possible way. How are you? <laughs> Finding yourself, man. Good, good. When, we, when I say mole, perhaps we should explain ourselves. We just want somebody who's burrowing around under the, under the radar there, finding out what's going on in terms of women. Because very often we read the papers, including your own, The New Age, uh, and find a bit of a dearth of information about women. What's, what's your feeling, having been in the newspaper business for a long time? Do you feel that that's the case? Um, well, I feel uh, we, we have come a long way in the free state here, focusing on, on gender issues. Uh, especially with with our provincial government focusing a lot on gender equality, and we've had uh, very much successes with that. Our premier Isma Gishule, uh he's got a 50 50 percent uh, cabinet year with uh, five uh, um, female MECs. So I think we're well on our way regarding um, gender gender based issues. We just need to to really um, at this stage encourage women more to come to come to the front and take up their roles in society on yeah, every level. Yeah, yeah, that always seems, it always comes back to that. Actually, you know, the, the doors are open. We just have to persuade ourselves to walk through them. So mm-hmm. as, as a woman in the media and having been in a couple of newspapers now, plenty of women in the media and we can't blame the structures of the media for not covering women's issues more. We need to, yeah, in a sense, we really uh, try to cover uh, women issues not in the free state. Um, we, we're busy now with a, with a huge awareness campaign uh, against uh, gender violence, uh, which started out last Thursday with, with the uh, provincial government and the Women League, the ANC Women's League branches. And uh, for the next three weeks, until up until um, Human Rights Day in April, we're going to cover a lot of of, of uh, women-related um, stories. And uh, well, I hope we hopefully we'll see a lot of marches because this is important for the people on the ground um, to really to really feel the anger of the women at this stage. And we will, we will certainly cover that. Um, I think on that level, it, the yeah, we need we need uh, stories on that. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, we need action on that too, I guess, don't we? Action, no, for sure. You know, yesterday we were talking to a couple of young women who are involved in a production of the Vagina Monologues, and one of the monologues is called, I think it's something to the effect of, "I'm over it." And I think a lot of people and a lot of women are are over this thing of having to keep defending themselves from violence and rape and that sort of attack. Do you think, I mean, just moving away from that, so, you know, on from it, but, but to the side of it, 
Do we hear enough about women's achievements, do you think? Or, or, but not necessarily women's achievements just because they're women, but the women are doing good stuff. Yeah, no, for sure. Uh, the last two weeks, um, we covered a wonderful initiative by the Department of Agriculture in the Free State here where, where, uh, where women were awarded uh, uh, top honours in six um, categories for achievement in agriculture. And a great thing here was, was the fact that, that three out of the six women in agriculture are black. And they receive top awards in, in, in certain um, categories. That, one of them, yeah. one of them, uh, one uh, top entrepreneur processing is uh, a lady from Bethlehem, Rosie Motlanyani. She's the owner of Rosie's uh, Dairy in Bethlehem. Now she's a single mother and she's producing cheese, yogurt, amazia, and fruit juices since 2011. And she's got an enormous business. She's, she's planning to expand with her winning money to sell her products to, Bloom, uh, to sell her products in Bloemfontein, Tabansha, and Welkom. So that's the kind of woman that, if we focus on them, you know, they can be an, very inspirational to us. Absolutely. I mean, well, hopefully we can try and get hold of Rosie. Um, you, you might just give her a, give us her surname again. What, what did you say, Rosie? Uh, Matlanyani. Matlanyani. Yeah, and she's a single mother. Yeah. And you know what, what really touched my heart during our interview is when she said to me, the secret of her success is her relationship with her workers. Uh, soon they will be able to get some shares in the business because they're working late with her as well every night, you know, closing shop at 10 and things like that. So, you know, you need to look after the people. And make you yes, successful. Yes, yes, that's, that's a really, really nice story. Did you interview mm-hmm. all of the six women awarded? Can you tell us about any of the others? Well, no, I'm not, um, I haven't done the rest of them yet, um, but I would like to focus, yeah, well, I, the next one I'd like to focus on is a female worker, because I think even though she won the best award for best female worker in the free state, she's a farmer in, in the making, um, and yeah. One should, you know, one should encourage her to, to just go to higher things in the near future. Yeah. Um, it sounds like you bring more than your notebook or your recording machine to an interview, Marina. It sounds like you bring quite a lot of heart. Do you find yourself sometimes a little overwhelmed with stories? No, definitely. Sure. When it comes to women, I mean, when I was at that march um, on Non-Human Rights Day and, and last week, Thursday, and you see all those women, and they're singing, and they're chanting, and it, it's absolutely a, a desperation to, to stop all the violence against women. But then again, uh, I mean, it's yeah, yeah. it's going to be it's going to be a, a, a cultural change. It's going to take a lot to do that because uh, we have poverty, we have unemployment, and all those things contribute to the violent things that we have in society today. So we can't just blame one person or we can't just blame a group of people it's it's everybody's business yeah. now we, we we need to we need to get our, our our unemployment and yeah things like that we we need to put that in place and create jobs yeah totally totally and agree with you people uh, mm. then then yeah yeah 
you know, I can't help feeling that maybe all the all the sort of recent victims of, of rape and crime, what have you, in some ways, you know, they paved the way for this new surge of we have to do something. So perhaps eventually we, we won't be needing to have these marches. But in the meantime, Marina, I'm going to leave you to it. I know that you've got lots to do, but we'll definitely talk again. You can keep us posted with what's going on in terms of women in the free state. It's been really great having a chat. Thank you. Thank you very Take much. Care. Yes. Marina van Veek and she is with the New Age newspaper there certainly sounds as I say like she brings a whole lot more than just a notebook to the job that she's doing lovely and don't forget once again if you'd like to be our mole in whatever area you're in whether whether it's a town or a village or a city or, or even a block of flats let us know you're most welcome otherwise at safm.co.za Otherwise with Nancy Richards well, next on that very subject, here's a story that came direct to us from a listener. She's Laura Burt. She's a nurse and a midwife. She lives in Jeffreys Bay. Well, I think she lives in Jeffreys Bay. But she got in touch with us to tell us all about the Healthy Mom and Baby Clinic that she helped establish some while ago, the purpose of which was to try and lower mother and child, the very high mother and child mortality rates, certainly the mother mortality, maternal mortality rates. We've got her on the line. Hi, Laura. Hi, Nancy. Nice to have you with us. Thanks very much for getting in touch. Thank you. It's nice to be able to perhaps share something that we're doing here for mothers and, and women around um, our area. Yes, indeed. So tell us, now I'm saying that you're living in Jeffreys Bay. Uh, I'm not so sure that that's absolutely true, but where is the clinic and how long has it been going? Um, Nancy, the clinic is actually based um, quite centrally in Jeffreys Bay, quite close to our community, and um, sort of borders on what we would know as the local CBD and onto the community. So very available for all portions of Jeffreys Bay and the Koha region. Okay, so it's accessible, which is a, a very good start. <laughs> and presumably people know about it. How long has it been going and how many people are able to come to it? Well, we started 10 years ago just um, in our local church and it was for mums that we had babies and we saw sort of had questions and didn't have answers to. So we, we started to just help them with basic mum and baby questions, you know, how does it sleep and how, how do we feed and when do we what, do what. But about four years ago, we realized that the whole community could benefit. So we opened a, a five-day-a-week clinic and we have midwives and nurses on duty and lots of volunteers and we probably see about 800 visits a month um, through our doors at just mums and babies and all sorts of, you know, medical situations that go with women and, and children. You yourself are a nurse and a midwife. When you talk about we uh, and the volunteers, who are you all who are doing this? Well, we've well the, the base has grown. It, it started with me, and we added another volunteer midwife. And today we have um, two full-time midwives and um, professional nurses, and then there's about three or four of us who work as volunteers. And then we have from the community women we've trained up who have come in to serve in the beginning, and they've learned to help with babies and weigh them and assess nutrition problems. So... The team just keeps growing. We've got administration staff and counsellors and a whole group of people from the community that, that have come in to assist us. Nice, because with every woman that you train up, you're you know, passing it on even beyond Absolutely. the clinic. Mums and babies, what are the big issues in terms of maternal health that the women present with? Nancy, I, I think even listening to your previous um, caller, it's women have the same problems regardless of which community they're living in. Mm. Um, once you're pregnant, you've never been that before, and there's a whole lot of questions. So just an education. So there's lots of antenatal work, lots of clinics that work with them. We see them on a regular basis. 
And then, of course, with pregnancy come all the high risks, high blood pressures, diabetes is growing in the community. We're obviously seeing and counseling for HIV. Um, but health in pregnancy is always, always going to put our women in a vulnerable spot. So anything to do with pregnancy um, is what they will be starting to come for. And then once the baby's born, we're then helping them with immunizing, you know, how to feed your baby, growth monitoring, all of those aspects that then come with it. So the range is quite large. You know, aside from knowledge and information, are you able to hand out medication? I mean, to what extent are you working with the Department of Health? It's actually for us quite, a, quite an exciting story. About four years ago, they, they came on board with us and were um, considered a satellite clinic for our Jeffrey's Bay Clinic, amazing um, Department of Health group that work in, in our area. And um, we uh, receive from them all their medicines. We use their protocols, all of the Department of Health, um, medical and, and, and protocols that you know, are, are given to us and then we don't charge because it's considered primary health. So anybody coming to see us sees us free of charge and um, yeah, if, if we work on a, a volunteer donation system for those that can afford it and for those that can't, everything is for free. And I suppose there will be, even with your goodwill and expertise, there will be things that you can't deal with. Are you working with any other sort of larger organizations where if there's a real complication that you can't handle, you can refer the women? Nancy, we, we're absolutely um, connected and with the local hospital and all the district um, clinics. So we, we, we're a part of um, the government um, Department of Health system that's working. So we're not an isolated system at all. If a woman is ill, we transfer straight into hospital. Um, the whole system that would work through the clinics, all we've seen is that there's a need for more care for women and children. And our local clinics are really bursting at the seams. Yeah. Everybody knows they're working so hard. And so what we aimed at was just specialized care for women so that we can drop that mortality rate. And as, so as soon as there's a problem, we send them to the hospital and the hospital will refer back to us as soon as they can. So it's very much a hand-in-glove working together with this community clinic. And our local church obviously helps us and funds us and brings our volunteers mm -hmm. in, and then with the Department of Health. So it's actually very exciting to see government and part, you know, private partnerships working so effectively on the ground. You know, the thing about babies is that whilst it's also terribly scary when they're, they're young and, oh, my goodness, what am I going to do with this, <laughs> this, this, this new creature that's with me, they grow up very, very quickly. To what extent are you able to help children, you know, up to sort of pre-primary, up to, you know, beyond? How, how much can you t take on? Well, we, we have, um, all our staff are trained with um, what the World Health Organization brought out and, and our country very effectively puts into place. It's called the Integrated Management of Childhood Illnesses. So all our sisters are trained. And so any sick babies that come in, they will get that same treatment um, on the spot. And if we need to refer again, the child will go to the hospital if, it does, if the mom is just needing more, more counselling or more help, they would come into the clinic as often as they need. And, of course, our mobile unit helps with that. We've got a team of women that are travelling in the community. And often a mom doesn't know there's a problem and it can get spotted at one of the creches or one of the home visits. And then we get to see that child a little bit quicker and we can get them the medical help they need. Okay, that was going to be my next question is, are you able to get out to women? Because I see that each and every baby that's born gets a home visit. Well, you know, old-fashioned nurses and midwives went into the homes, but the, the level of 
you know, the population has just got so big, I don't think our midwives are able to do it anymore. Mm-hmm. So we really find it necessary to actually visit the mom as soon as we can, see that she's breastfeeding, see that the baby is actually functioning, that there's no infections. And they get a welcome present, so we try and get them a little baby grow and a blanket and something, um, disposable nappies or something, whatever we can help with, so that we just making the contact. And once a woman has met you and she's known your face, she's able to come and say to you, I've got a problem. Can you help? Why can't breastfeed? How can we get around this? And so just making that first initial contact in the home, we really finding that the women are so much more responsive to know that someone cares and they can bring their problems to us. Yeah, and I suppose for every woman that you've trained in or, you know, trained with her own situation, with her own baby, she's able to then go and help another woman. Absolutely. But, Laura, I don't know if you were listening earlier, and I'm going to actually ask her if you won't just sort of stay on after the news headlines, because according to a recent study that was done on women, HIV-positive women in South Africa, Zimbabwe, and Uganda, and I think possibly also Botswana and Namibia, but certainly here in Southern Africa, we heard about um, one, of the, one of the pieces of information that was revealed was that the prevention of HIV infection through vaginal gels and tablets, etc., is proving to be ineffective in these countries because 70% of the women were not using the medication as instructed. That feels like a very, very high percentage. In terms of information, what, do you, what would be your take on that? Nancy, I, I think most of our women are not able always to understand the, the, the medical terminology. Um, things we read on leaflets and pamphlets and, you know, is not always understood. And a lot of those things, if you're not using in the proper way and in the proper amounts, it's not going to be effective. What I am seeing in my clinic is where the mom is um, helped with her HIV status very early on in pregnancy and she gets onto her medication. We have a very, very, very small amount of children that are HIV positive after, her, after birth. And so there's definitely a, a change in, in the number of babies falling, uh, falling uh, or, or getting HIV once they're born if the mom is on treatment. But, you know, things like vaginal gels and those things, those are complicated and not always accessible to every woman. And, and the how to use it is I don't actually know that right now our women are educated and informed enough for that to be yeah because to be honest you don't have to be undereducated to be a little bit confused by a lot of those things so it's not just uh, about women in disadvantaged areas no it's all uneducated women i'm just going to ask you to to just stay with us for a little bit just got a couple more questions so stay with us okay talking to laura burt she's with the healthy one of the the founder of the healthy mum and baby clinic in jeffrey space so stay with us but right now it's 1.30 headline time with utsile saku Thanks, Nancy. In the headlines, Nigerian terrorist Henry Oka has been jailed for 24 years by the High Court in Johannesburg. Rebels in the Central African Republic have apologised for an attack on a South African base at Bangui that led to the death of 13 South African National Defence Force soldiers. And President Jacob Zuma says China and South Africa have a long history of cooperation and the two BRICS members will continue to benefit from their close relationship. President Zuma was addressing the media at the presidential guest house in Pretoria after a series of agreements were announced between China and South Africa. Details at 2 o'clock. 
Thanks very much, Sylvia. But uh, right now, in a minute, we're going to be talking about Sufi narratives on intimacy. We're going to be chatting to uh, chatting to Sadia Sheikh. She is uh, something of a specialist on the subject. But right now, we just got we still got Laura Birch with us. She's a nurse and midwife, founder of the Healthy Mom and Baby Clinic. Two things, Laura. Uh, hopefully, you're going to give us your details because I'm sure all those little welcome to the world presents don't cost nothing. So maybe if people are able to help make donations or whatever, I would imagine that might be quite welcome. But you know, just on the subject of education and uh, and knowledge and info and all that sort of thing. There's also quite a lot of misinformation, quite literally misinformation or misinformation that's out there. Do you find that that can get in the way? Probably one of my areas of of, of great concern. Most of us don't know too much about having a baby or, or being pregnant or raising a baby until it happens. And so mom's got an idea and the mother in law has got an idea and what you've read in a book, and every magazine out there has got a lot of information, but your baby's different, and your need needs to be chatted through, and, and that's what we do. We, we know that the more time we spend with that mom and actually get to hear what her issue is, then we can help. Okay. So the sort of myth, misinformation that you're working with, what, what are your biggest challenges in that respect? I think I, I don't have enough breast milk. My breast milk is the wrong color. It's too thin. Um, my baby doesn't like food. It doesn't like porridge. My baby doesn't like to sleep at night. Um, HIV and AIDS belongs only to some people. Um, you know, I deal with lots of pre- teenage pregnancies. There's a lot of abuse in homes. So I think the the idea that everybody's life is perfect is is such a misinformation. People are living very hard and very difficult lives, and, and we really need to be uh, available to help them on, on whatever level we can. Not enough breast milk. Uh, it's the wrong color. It's the wrong sort of thing. <laughs> I mean, the, you know, that's a very real thing, and, and yeah. as we all know, we've mm. heard it countless times, that if you can breastfeed your baby, it's really going to do that baby a, a big favor in terms of the, the child's resilience that's right that. throughout life. Um, is there, are there a lot of women breastfeeding, wanting to breastfeed, or or giving up, as so many of us are inclined to do? I, I think that's, that's why we want to get to the mommies once the baby is born, because if you spend two or three days battling on your own and um, you don't have an idea of who you can talk to, um, then you will go straight to the bottle. There is, um, there is very little chance that a woman who's battling on her own, facing mastitis and sore breasts and a screaming baby, is going to push through with this nutrition. That's the best that we can give her. So... Um, a lot of the time, if we can get to our ladies early enough, we can help them and encourage them. And that's sort of one of our focal points, is that we just are there at the right time so that before the decision's made to change, that we can help them. Have you got any sort of printed material that, uh, you know, because it, it, it tries one might when you're sitting in consultation, you can take all this sort of stuff in, but when you go home, it suddenly disappeared from your head. Are you, have you got any sort of printed material? Yeah, we, we, we do have our own um, set of notes, and, and obviously we do spend a lot of time with them mostly. Um, they go home with information and with notes, but it's the actual hands-on seeing you again tomorrow, maybe getting back into your home tomorrow. Um, that actually wins at the end of the day. Um, the actual practical putting that information and the brochure together is, is what we're seeing as effective. It's the time and the information and that brochure. And sometimes even having the bad there. So um, that we can educate the father and how he can help and how he can 
step up into that gap to help mom get through this very difficult time, you know? A hugely important role that dads play. Again, that was going to be my next question. To what extent are the the dads encouraged to come along? They can be very scary places, places where there are lots of mums and babies. You know, it's enough to make any man disappear in the other direction. (laughs) Very much. Are they they welcomed in? They're very welcome. And, Mm. you know, our clinic is a little bit different. We we work on appointments, so nobody spends the whole day waiting to see the sister. Um, and so we find that fathers can take an hour or two off or they know they're going to see the sister in the morning and they come. And we actually are surprised at how many fathers are interested and how many have their own questions when they come and how they are getting involved. And, and it's fascinating because um, the dads are there at the birth and, and they're trying. And obviously we have a lot of women that it isn't happening for. Uh, obviously there, there are loads of, of women whose husbands are not caring, but... There is a growing interest, and, and where the fathers are welcomed, I'm, I'm finding that they're very happy to be there and, um, and are looking for their own sort of information so that they can be hands-on dads. Yeah, yeah. Just, just lastly, because I can hear that there's a, there's a lot of information that you could be sharing with us, or teen pregnancy. How do you cope with that? Are you able to, are you able to give them choices if, if the young girls present early enough? Um, Nancy, to be quite honest, we obviously are um, Christian-based. Yes, we say you're faith-based. It's definitely not to abort the baby, but because we work very early with these girls, um, the option we work them through with adoptions. We have a baby safe if they don't want to have their baby there. Um, we, we make those options available. Um, the majority of our community, is, it's, it's actually quite exciting, is that the majority of these girls come in scared and frightened, but by the time we've got the mum, her mother, to come in, we work with a lot of restoring of relationships there, and a lot mm. of these children are actually accepted into the family home. So it, the teenage pregnancy is a huge concern for us. There's too many. They're pregnant for a lot of the wrong reasons. Um, yes, unemployment, falling out of school, abuse sometimes at home, you know, too much boyfriends that are too old for the children, you know. Um, those, those are real concerns for us, but we do work with them. Uh, our big heart is to, to work through the whole pregnancy. And then the other side, we've actually in our church have got foster care situations, but there's also a crèche that a lot of these moms are able to put their kids into the crèche and go back to school. Because we really need these women to get educated. Mm-hmm. We really need them to qualify. And, but you've got to look after the baby for them while they go back to school. So there's a whole lot of systems that we've put in place to try and help um, teenagers work through it and to make some different decisions the next time around. Otherwise, we see them again in a two years. So it's more than just how to get this baby um, born safely, but why did you make those decisions? How can we help you? What would have been a better choice? You know, so that they don't repeat and and come around again in a few years' time. Yeah. Sounds like the work that you're doing is is really quite pastoral. I mean, as you say, you're a Christian-based organization. But um, there's only so many hours in the day and only so much work that we can do. But given that, that you've got lots of volunteers, hopefully your volunteer base will grow and your work will continue. Laura, thank you so much. I am going to give out, and I've got your website, in fact, so I'm going to give out your website, uh, which is healthymomandbabyclinic.com, healthymomandbabyclinic.com. It's right there in Jeffreys Bay. And a phone number, if anybody would like to give you a call. Um, Sydney, 042. Yeah. Two nine three. Yeah. One nine five two. Super. Well, let me repeat that. Very best of luck. Thanks for getting in touch, and good luck with uh, all the all the mums and babies that you're working with. Thank you. Thank you so Take much. Take care. Cheers. Bye bye.
Laura Birch, she's a nurse and midwife and the healthymomandbabyclinic.com if you want to check their website. If you want to give them a call, it's 042-293-1952. Otherwise, with Nancy Richards. Otherwise, it is Talking Women here on SAFM. Well, lastly on the show, Sufism. It's defined by adherence, according to Wikipedia, as the inner mystical dimension of Islam. Well, Sadia Sheikh is an associate professor in the Department of Religious Studies and the Center for Contemporary Islam at UCT, the University of Cape Town. She's also with the American Academy of Religion and Sexuality Consultation. But more significantly, in terms of this particular interview, she's also the author of a book called Sufi Narratives of Intimacy, and we have her on the line. Hi, Sadia Sheikh. Nice to have you with us. Hi, Nancy. Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure. Where do we start here with Sufi Narratives of Intimacy? Why did you write it? Um, well, I was a student, a graduate student, and one of the things that compelled me to study Islam was my own, was two issues particularly. The firstly is that I had always been particularly interested in questions of meaning and the kind of what one would term existential questions. You know, what does it mean to be a human being? Why are we here? What is the purpose of human life? Uh, so that compelled me to study religion, and the other part of the, the equation for me was always the question of when we're thinking about these categories of being human, how does gender factor in? Uh, what is it, you know, coming from a particular kind of community and a society where uh, not just in religious communities, but by and large, women were seen somewhat differently or valued differently, uh, in my view, as a young student. Uh, I was grappling with the questions of what it means to be human and what it means to be a gendered human being. So that's the kind of broader birth of, this, of my trajectory of research. Uh, and this book is a culmination of some of that research. Were you um, born into Islam or did you convert? No, I was born as a Muslim. Okay. Because we spoke to a young woman the other day, last week in fact, and we talked about her journey and she, she converted into um, to Islam. And her, interest, her story was very interesting. And we did touch very, very briefly on um, feminist, feminism in Islam. But it seems that you've taken it to the next step. What, uh, what conflicts do you have and what challenges do you have in terms of feminism and Islam? And what do you see as the path? Um, well, it's, you know, I mean, like, in terms of any religious tradition, I think religions are dynamic and religions have particular histories and trajectories. And in my own reading of the Muslim tradition, uh, there are multiple kind of, multiple currents of gender, if one wants to think about it like that. Um, and what we've been often hearing developing um, in my research and in my life. And what are the problems? What are the barriers? What is it that you are working to achieve? Uh, well, you know, we have in the Muslim community, one of the things that people struggle with a lot, uh, Muslim women struggle with a lot, is particular understandings of um, the law, for example. So the notions of what we understand to be Islamic law in the current, you know, in the current uh, context is really a a kind of a, a, a systematic kind of understanding of what it would mean to live ethically by um, a, a group of, historically a group of men that have made sense of the Muslim tradition, often very pious good men, uh, but by and large men that have had a particular experience. And so what we now know, for example, is 
dominant understandings of the law are really an inherited tradition that has been authored by men. It's not really God's law. And the, the conflation between what is God's law and what is human construction is often the problem. And that comes particularly to issues around gender. So, for example, you know, even if you're not talking about technically legal things, if you're talking just about social issues, for example, um, access to mosques, you know, in some contexts, where I live in Cape Town, for example, we have access to mosques far more easily than places in the northern, province, northern provinces, for example. Uh, but the fact that in mosques in different parts of the world and in, in different parts of South Africa, women sometimes don't even have spaces to pray in, for me, is, is a violation of their fundamental right. Um, you know, you know it's, it's part of a violation of something that is part of their religious rights. Uh, and so... Issues around mass access, issues around the roles of, of, um, of, of uh, men and women in families and in the society. We have a variety of understandings, and part of the feminist work that I do is to be able to unearth and to look at the Muslim tradition with the lenses of justice and say, what are the resources to be thinking about justice-based practice? Uh, and that impacts all aspects, you know, of, of, of life, whether it's about attending mosques, whether it's about uh, the, the access to divorce rights that men and women should have that are equal but historically have not been equal, the fact, you know, so it ranges from you know, across a variety of issues. It touched on a lot of things there, notably the roles of men and women in families and divorce rights. Can we just look at the distinction between the role of a man and the role of a woman within a Muslim family? Um, yes, absolutely. Uh, there is, I mean, I mean, the first thing that I would like to say is that there is no one Muslim family. There is no one, you know, particular, the, the notion of, the, the roles in family have changed over time. So if you look at a Muslim family in the 21st century, living in Cape Town, for example, it's very different if, than reading a legal text that was authored in the 10th or the 11th century where people lived in the Middle, you know, possibly in the Middle East with a very different set of cultural norms. So what is the Muslim family is often, whenever people say the Muslim family, they're trying to reduce a, a huge complex historical and social and geographical phenomenon to a particular mode that probably suits their own agenda. The point that I am trying, some of the work that myself and other Muslim feminists are in the process of doing, is to say, well, which part of the tradition is things that speak to something that is universal and spiritually eternal in time, you know, through, through the Muslim tradition, and which are things that are changing. Now, family roles, I think, are things that are open to varieties of form formations and they can change and they don't need to reflect you know, 12th century or 13th century or pre-modern Muslim norms. Families change in, and the, the, the roles of men and women within families change depending on the context. So for example, today in Cape Town, from, you know, one study that I've been working on here on Muslim women in Cape Town uh, shows that in fact there are you know, an increasing number of women that actually um, contribute financially to their household. Um, and in, in that particular context, the notion that men are the providers of women don't actually, not, are not, is not realistically and practically and socially what happens. Uh, while a lot of Muslims would actually argue, well, that is the traditional role of a man to provide uh, financially for a family. So I say, I think that, you know, there have been roles historically that men and women have assumed. Uh, these are not set in stone. Uh, they are described and they are, they are normalized according to particular cultures and particular times. When, when, when the social realities are changing in the way that they are in the contemporary period, uh, it becomes very difficult to constantly try and relate to a set of roles that, that were formed and formulated in a very different historical context. Yes. So um, in the contemporary period, I would say that really what is essential is a form of companionship in marriage where two human beings 
you know, relate to each other with this respect and dignity and love, and that, and the, the ways in which they occupy those roles are to be defined by those particular qualities. That there, there is no one particular role. If, for example, you're in a family where the wife is the primary uh, provider, financial provider, there's nothing particularly un-Islamic about that. It's just, the, you know, the context of what's happening. It's the, the ethics of relationships that really should be determined by a particular religious ethos, and that ethos we, in, in, in the work that I'm doing, is, is an ethos of, um, you know, of companionship and dignity and respect that, that partners give to each other. And what's appropriate and relevant to the 21st century, which brings me right back to where we started, Sufism being a, a, a very, very ancient tradition, still relevant? In, you, your book is called Sufi Narratives of Intimacy. Still relevant? Uh, absolutely. I think uh, Sufism is one part of Islam. Um, it's a particular, if you're looking at the Muslim tradition, there are different dimensions that Muslims have over time focused on. Um, Islamic law has been one aspect of it. Um, Islamic mysticism, Sufism, uh, has been another dimension. And historically, uh, in the past, you often had people that... Uh, Sufism is really about attending to the issues of spirit, of spirituality, spiritual refinement. Uh, and, and, and also, to be clear, this is not an internal spirituality where it's only one's internal spiritual, spiritual path. My argument is that spirituality is really about the ways in which we live our lives, both in the personal and the private and the political in every sphere. So spirituality is not something that you just simply do in some kind of, you know, retreat by yourself. Uh, spirituality is about the ethics of living with a particular kind of attitude towards reality and towards God and towards your fellow human beings. Um, so Islamic mysticism or Sufism has been part of the Muslim tradition from the beginning and continues as a very uh, vibrant um, number of mystical paths or tariqas, a different uh, forms of Islamic mysticism that has always defined the tradition and continues to do so. So it's very much alive. It's always been part of the tradition. Um, and I, I would I actually, one of the reasons that I focus on Islamic mysticism is that it is particularly that tradition within, within Muslim thought that attends to the very deep questions of what it means to be a human being. How do you refine your relationship with God and with other human lives? You know, what is the, what is the ideals of human life? What is virtue? And how do you attain virtue? Uh, and all of those deep questions that that are fund, you know, foundational to every other aspect of the tradition. Um, Sadia, sadly, we're out of time, but I can only imagine that uh, when you talk about the women that I'm working with, that you are quite a number, and I'm hoping that you are supported by men from, uh, from other Muslim men as well, but I imagine it may not be that easy. But on that note, sadly, we're going to leave it there, but the uh, Sufi Narratives of Intimacy, it's available, it's published by UCT Press. Indeed, yes. Lovely. Well, perhaps we can get you back another day and talk a little bit further about divorce rights, because that's something we, we touched on but didn't explore. But thank you very much for your time, and very best of luck with your book. Thank You're you. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me, Nancy. Sadia Sheikh, she's an Associate Professor in the Department of Religious Studies at UCT, and her book is called Sufi Narratives of Intimacy and it is published by UCT Press. You're listening to Otherwise, thanks for the team. That's Hazel Michael and Rob Parkin. Up next, Sharp Sharp, the Children's Program.